Welcome to Green Minds, a podcast of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network. I'm Catherine Mercier-Baggett. This is the last episode of our three-part series on pioneer practitioners in regenerative design. We will hear from three organizations supported by the Candida Fund, an Atlanta-based foundation that invests in transformative leadership and ideas and creating a more just and equitable world. Learn more about their work at candidafund.org. We recorded these interviews last fall ahead of a convening of the Candida Fund grantees. We spoke with Brian Cordell, the executive director of the Sustainability Institute, and Michael Walton with Green Spaces, respectively based in Charleston, South Carolina, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. Both organizations provide a multitude of initiatives, including green building certification, workforce development, and ecological restoration, resulting in the empowerment of disadvantaged communities. And we wrap up with Meg Jameson, the Executive Director of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network, a member-driven network that enables sustainability and resilience professionals from local governments, like myself, to share best practices. I'm Laurel Creech with you, your host for this podcast. I want to give a warm welcome to Brian Cordell. He is the Executive Director for the Sustainability Institute. How's it going, Brian? Good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for taking some time to be with me. It's a busy time of the year. And uh, first, I would love to hear a little bit more about what the Sustainability Institute does. Sure. So we're a nonprofit organization uh, based in Charleston, South Carolina, but serving the Lowcountry coastal region. Um, we've been around for about two decades, and we're all about promoting sustainable, resilient, and equitable uh, communities. Um, while building the next generation of conservation workers and, and leaders here in our region. Uh, so we have a number of different um, programs, services, and activities that, that are based around that. Uh, very centered in environmental conservation. Now, you've been with the organization since, since 2006. How have you seen the organization evolve over the years? Yeah, well, it's been... Uh, very interesting and, and very much aligned with, um, you know, an, an increase in people's interest, enthusiasm, and, you know, concern about, you know, what's going on with the environment and climate change. We're very fortunate to be in a, in a place, you know, in the country where there's a lot of uh, conservationists, uh, you know, here in the coastal region that care very much about our environment. And so we've, um, you know, been able to pick up on that enthusiasm and, you know, over the years, the organization itself has sort of increased in capacity and contracted in capacity at, at, at times, depending upon, you know, just the external environment and, and sort of what's going on in, in politics and, and other things. But yeah, it's, it's been amazing. And we're now doing, you know, facilitating all kinds of conservation activities that we weren't a decade ago. Can you give an example of, of a conservation yeah. activity? Yeah, so a lot of our uh, work over the past two decades has been in the built environment and specifically, you know, addressing how do we make our buildings, our homes and our buildings more energy efficient, you know, less costly for people to operate and higher performing. Uh, so we've done, you know, a lot of weatherization, low income weatherization work uh, over that time. Um, we're also, uh, we have a green building certification program that's focused on, you know, advancing high performance building uh, in the region. So a lot of that, our work has been building focused. Uh, 
but now increasingly we've gotten into the uh, habitat restoration space. And so we have a number of different um, programs and activities that are centered on habitat restoration, green infrastructure, and you know, how do we advance coastal resilience uh, through those activities? Well, that's a great transition to my next question. Uh, Brian, how would you define regenerative design? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting, and I'm not going to give you like a technical definition, but more just sort of how I think about it. And it's moving from sort of the mantra of doing less harm to more good and, you know, creating a net positive benefit um, through your activities, both to the people that, um, you know, interact with your projects or activities, but also the ecology around it. And so, you know, I think it's a movement towards, you know, restoration um, and replenishing. And we like to think of, you know, would even take it so far to say it's all about reversing damage. And so a lot of our habitat restoration activities and green infrastructure activities are, you know, all about healing landscapes. And we take a very, like, nature-based approach to doing that. But you know, a lot of our work over the years has also been centered around social equity and uh, you know, how do we educate and train uh, and involve the community and the, and the environmental activities that we do. Um, at the center of our organization has been a work, workforce training program that is designed to you know, help build the next generation of conservation leaders but it's all focused on you know young people. It's service learning. Uh, so we are a National AmeriCorps site and we engage young people who sign up for terms of service and teach them you know conservation skills through the restorative activities that we're we're doing. And then they you know get placed into conservation careers as a result of that. So uh, whether it's, you know, the workforce training efforts that we do through our AmeriCorps program or just how we involve the community in our uh, conservation activities, there's very much for us a focus on the people element to this as well. That's really interesting. Um, from your perspective, what kind of trends are you seeing around regenerative design in the Southeast region? We are so focused on this idea of reversing damage <laughs> and I think that's something that we see particularly in like the habitat restoration space you know a lot of the government agencies and other nonprofit partners that we work with are very focused on how do we do that and here in our low country region you know we're dealing with everything from uh, sea level rise um, to, you know, increase flooding and extreme heat and all of these, uh, you know, rapidly changing climate conditions that are causing significant environmental damage to our ecosystems. A lot of our conversations are about, you know, how do you slow, stop or reverse that damage that's, that's happening. And for us, it's not just about the activity, it's about you know, how do you educate and demonstrate while you're doing that? And then how do you um, involve the community in those efforts as well? 
And being in the Southeast, we have some opportunities and sometimes some challenges. Do you see any barriers to adoption of regenerative design? For us, it's about um, having people just sort of think differently and, you know, move from some of the older concepts of, you know, reducing, reusing, recycling or sustainability towards a little bit of a different concept, which is more restorative. And that requires a lot of education and awareness building. So that, I think that's a challenge, just helping people understand what regenerative design means or sort of what the themes are. For us in our work, it, it requires a collaborative approach. So pretty much everything we do, we do it with a partner or a set of partners. And so moving from organizations operating in isolation from each other that are all doing good environmental work to more of a collaborative model has been, I think, a challenge. It requires us all to work differently. And, you know, I would say another challenge is just how do we measure the impact that we're making? You know, for us, it's really important for us to be able to measure and demonstrate that impact. Um, and that's not always easy to figure out the best way to do. And it's very much, you know, centered on whatever that activity is. And so, you know, I think it's one thing to talk about the activities that you're doing, but it's another to actually be able to, you know, measure long-term what the net impact of those activities are. And so I would say that that's a big challenge as well. Yeah, I would imagine there's both environmental as well as human impact and how to measure that can indeed be challenging. Yep, and they're measured often measured in very different ways. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, Brian, what are you hoping to gain from the gathering with the Candida Fund and the other grantees in November? Yeah, so um, a, I'm just so inspired by the work that these other organizations are doing, and I think there are themes of similar activities that we're all focused on. And so I'm really interested in, you know, learning about the challenges that those organizations are facing in their place and how they've addressed some of those challenges. challenges. And I'm, you know, anticipating that there's some of the same challenges that, that, that we're dealing with. So I'm, you know, interested in just learning more about how they're doing what they're doing, learning about how they're innovating around those activities. With your tenure at as executive director of the Sustainability Institute, what is one or two things that you're most proud of? You know, we've done so much work in vulnerable, um, economically marginalized communities in our, our region, and that's required us over the years to build a lot of trust. We are very intensively focused on doing outreach in these communities and building that trust in order to serve families, um, you know, in the best way that, that we can. And so um, I'm pretty proud of the work that we've done in that space. Uh, so for us, you know, we've, you know, retrofitted close to 400 homes in the Charleston area. And that's, I think, interesting just from a, you know, how impactful it is for those families. But, you know, beyond that, we have relationships with those families. We're, we're all about trying to create lifelong relationships with those families and figuring out how to serve them in all kinds of ways, not just through a intervention on their home. So I'm pretty proud of the work that we've done in, in that space. Well, Brian, is there anything else you wanted to share with us today? 
you know, I would say, I would just want to mention you were asking about sort of challenges around our work and a big challenge that I think all these organizations are focused on across our region here in the South is just the scale of the energy uh, insecurity issue. And, you know, we know across the South, uh, roughly one in three families can't afford to can't afford their monthly energy cost and that it's you know economically debilitating to those families but the scale of that problem is so large and it's so complex uh, and, and at least for us in our work it's not just about going in and like weatherizing a house but there's often critical repairs that need to be made you know thinking about the work that that we need to do to repair fix make those homes more energy efficient so that people can just afford their utility bills um, you know, it's a massive challenge. And I'm really interested in learning from these other organizations how they're addressing that challenge in their communities. Uh, going from where we are today in terms of those housing interventions to where we really want to be 10 years from now with much more renewable energy and people not having energy bills, it's a, it's a large gap to, to, uh, to cross. And so just really interested to hear what other organizations are doing as well. Have you had a history with working with the Candida Fund? We have, yeah. We've been a, a grantee of theirs and their support has really you know, enabled us to, to work in this space. So it's been, been wonderful. Great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge, expertise and perspective on regenerative design. Thank you. I'm excited to have a special guest with me today. I want to give a very warm welcome to Meg Jamison, the Executive Director of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network, SSDN. How's it going, Meg? Great. So glad to be here today. Good. And I'm excited to be able to co-host this interview today with the co-host of the SSDN Green Minds podcast, Catherine Mercer-Baggett. How's it going, Catherine? Wonderful. Very nice to share the microphone with you today. Yes, feel the same way. Well, Meg, um, I, let's go ahead and just get into what is SSDN and what is the work that you do for the organization? Thanks, Laurel. Um, and I'm so happy to be on the phone with you too, as longtime members of SSDN and steering committee members of SSDNs. I've been with SSDN since 2015, um, and I've been in the role of executive director since 2018. I'm based here in Asheville, but as you might guess, SSDN or the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network is regional and we work all over the Southeast. We work across 10 states from Virginia down to Florida over to Arkansas and Louisiana to encourage and support local governments in sustainability best practices across the region. And we're really all about peer learning. We're a network and that means that we believe in the power of trusted connections to find alignment across the region. And we really strongly feel that if more local governments feel like they can rely on each other and connect with each other and understand each other's work, that that will drive new solutions and drive progress. SSDN has grown since 2015. I think when I started, Laurel, you were on board, but there were only maybe 30 members. And now today we are almost at 110 local governments that are a part of SSDN the need to have a real staff and to have an actual organization and structure behind managing all of these awesome local governments just became apparent, you know, over time as we grew. Um, and I think we're about to hit another growth spurt. I think every time we see large investments from like the federal government, all of a sudden you see a lot of new communities coming to the table. It's been a really exciting time. I think we're about to hit another very exciting time. 
yeah, just have to see what the future holds. Now, I'm sure you're looking forward to the Candida gathering coming up in November, and uh, Candida has been a great supporter of SSDN. Tell us a little bit more about how Candida has worked with SSDN over the years. Yeah, Candida has really helped us grow and has really helped us find our voice and our footing in this world of local government and sustainability leaders within local government trying to elevate their leadership in equity-driven sustainability work. Candida came into the SSDN picture with an initial investment um, from our partner and program officer, Dennis Creech, where we started a program called the Southeast Sustainable Communities Fund. We started that in 2017, and it's a regranting program that gave funds to local government and community partnerships to work on local government, but community-driven, um, either energy or water projects. And so we funded, in total, that program ran for three cycles, and we funded about around $5 million, 17 projects throughout the region. And uh, City of Nashville and their partners were one of our grantees in the second round and happy to see the results from your all's great project there. So that's how we got introduced to Candida. Candida has also supported SSDN in a number of other ways, especially with this recent transition in the federal government. We were able to launch a program called the Southeast Sustainable Recovery Center, which helps build capacity for our members to understand this enormous moment in federal funding and federal investment. Um, and then they also have supported our policy program, which has allowed us to really elevate the leadership of our members in state policy engagement, either in the regulatory space or education about different legislation that impacts them. So all in all, an enormous partner has made an enormous impact on SSDN and our members and really couldn't say enough kind words about where we've been able to go thanks to their support. The topic of the gathering that's happening this fall with the Candida Fund is around regenerative design. So I'm going to turn it over to Catherine Mercer Baggett to take it from here. Thanks, Laurel. Meg, you're in a position that gives you a broad overview of what's happening in sustainability at the local level in a really large part of the country. How do you feel that regenerative design is becoming an emerging topic in your membership at SSDN? And also, what does it mean? From my perspective, from SSDN's perspective, I, I can speak more broadly. I think regenerative design is important to recognize it's a whole community system. It's a whole systems approach to buildings and sustainable communities create us together in a system that's like a feedback loop. And it honestly just serves without taking away. We really want to get to a net positive of the systems that we're creating rather than detracting from these systems that sustain us, sustain our lives and sustain our environment. And our members support a broad range of the, of the elements that support regenerative design in communities. So we talk about things like circular economy strategies, waste reduction, environmental conservation, and environmental regeneration you know, clean renewable energy plays into that, different types of water management strategies. And then lastly, I guess I'll say is also this social justice and equity framework, knowing that we have to have environments that support our communities, but our communities also have to have these social support networks. So you have to have access to transportation, to education, to healthcare, to economic opportunities. And especially in our Southeast Sustainable Communities Fund projects, a lot of what we were encouraging 
our members and their partners was to really set up their projects, set up their programs, and set up their way of being with their communities in a way that provides not just those environmental and regenerative benefits, but also those social benefits as well. Of all the efforts that you are seeing, are there trends that are really starting to rise to the top in terms of what local governments are doing in terms of regenerative design, of course? Yeah, I mean, and I'd love to have this be a conversation too, because I know y'all are working on things in your communities that are really leading in this space. And I already kind of gave a couple of examples, but just to dive in a little bit more deeply, we do have members working in on buildings and in the built environment. And I think there's a very positive movement forward in terms of like very nuanced, but also specific ways that local governments can pass policies to support building electrification or living building standards or other sort of lead or other type standards where buildings are really, again, creating a net positive environment rather than being contributing back towards the the emissions that we're trying to take down. And in other ways, in terms of like the broader community perspective, we do have a lot of members that are working heavily on waste reduction strategies and these concepts of, of the circular economy, meaning everything is going through a feedback loop that's used over and over again. And then other ways, Catherine, you, you work on this in Sandy Springs, flooding and water is, is like one of the biggest climate threats in our region. And that's what our members say all the time. And these ways that we can create ways to live with water and sort of regenerate out of these new challenges that are coming with intensification of storms. A lot of those things have co-benefits and can deal with things like heat and then having at the same time sequester carbon. So it's a mix of like our members looking at very specific, I would say like site-specific elements, but also this broader environment of these co-benefits that can be implemented as part of that broader system. Laurel, what efforts are you leading right now in Nashville in terms of regenerative design? That is something that we're actually exploring. Uh, We have a living building that is being built down in the southeast corridor of Nashville, Tennessee, that where we're, the city's not building itself, but there is one being built by a private entity. And we're excited to see that to come to fruition. It's the Concrete Association, which is a really unique uh, opportunity for them. And it's adjacent to a thousand acres plus of parkland and right near school. So it's a it's a perfect opportunity for education to happen at that facility. It's going to be open to the public and have visitations and things like that. So we're excited about that. Vanderbilt University has had some conversations about living building and trying to move forward with that, which is probably examples of regenerative design as it specifically relates to the built environment. And then in terms of the social aspect, we work oftentimes with our council members in identifying needs, equity needs as it relates to climate change and figuring out how we can really make impact in communities that have been have been affected the greatest. You were talking about flooding. We had a horrible thousand year flood that hit us in 2010. And definitely the those that are lower income populations were hit the most. And that's something that we're working on still to this day and figuring out how to remediate future flooding and, and get those neighbors to understand about the importance of water and what happens, why climate change is happening and how can they, how can they help remediate that? I'd say those are two examples. I think Nashville 
is probably a little bit behind some of the other cities and organizations that we've spoken to as part of this regenerative conversation, but we look forward to continue learning. Those are really interesting and wonderful projects going on. Going back to regenerative design in a bigger scope, Meg, have you noticed some barriers to implementation and, you know, working for local governments, I could probably mention a thousand different barriers, but which ones are you seeing as being the most common? Yeah, I would love to riff on this and like, I'll share some, but y'all share some too, (laughs) because I know that I will have all of them. And it depends on what sort of, I guess, level of intervention. But I think one thing we find is staff capacity for our local governments. Like you all are so passionate and you want to do all the things. And I know that most of our members right now have one person. Catherine, you have a one person team. And Laurel, I think you just recently got a team. So like it's it's all very much related to a limited staff capacity to do the things that you want to do. And I think lack of money. And I think that the lack of capacity and lack of money are the two biggest barriers to most things that our members want to do. I think there's some barriers that relate, especially maybe in the in the built environment when you get to state building codes and you you start to look at things that you can and you can't do or things that you might want to require in local in local government, but you're prevented from doing that just due to your state environment and state regulations. At SSDN, a lot of our members are looking to do things differently than we have in the past in, in local government. And I think local government is, is a part of the system, is a part of our system that's rooted in white supremacy. And we have these ways of doing things that are hard to break. And at SSDN, I know that our members are really interested in being intentional at this social element and this environmental justice element and making sure that equity can be central to any efforts to go and, and engage and make change. And I think time, time is a barrier. We all feel like the clock is ticking on climate. And I know we all feel and know that doing things the right way is super critical. And it's just going to take time to make these things happen and to make them community driven and to make sure that those community members are feeling like this is not doing something for them. It's doing something with them and under their leadership. So those are a couple of things. And then I know there are so many others, but I would love to hear from y'all. Like, what do you think your main barrier might be? I think for Sandy Springs, we're missing a critical tool right now in sustainability in general. We don't have a plan yet. We Mm. have this very general policy of becoming a leader in sustainability, but what does that mean? So it's been difficult to prioritize projects and efforts without that kind of framework. That's something that I've been trying to get, but thanks to COVID, it has been been pushed down a couple of times. But we've had some opportunities to engage in regenerative design, and I'm, I'm very grateful for those. We're doing a lot of ecological restoration at a small scale, but we're really thinking that that's going to have several benefits that will have a, a positive impact on our community. I think for Sandy Springs, it's just this plan that is missing that would be very helpful to my work. How about you, Laura? Yeah, I think we we do have a climate action report slash plan that came out about a year and a half ago. And we have a very large sustainability advisory committee that was involved in developing that. And we are starting to make some inroads in implementing that. However, I would say that 
we have put a flag in the fact that we have not integrated equity or diversity into the plan and that flag has not moved. So it's really, really hard because it just all the things that Meg said to have the capacity, to have the funding, to have the strategy, all that takes an effort. And when you have limited staff and limited time, especially with an administration, it's not always the easy, low, low hanging fruit. And so that flag is hopefully begin to start moving, but it's got to be very intentional. It's sort of like um, our housing, housing issues we've been having. It's we're starting to make some inroads, but it's one of those Goliath challenges that takes a village to to start working on. And it's probably the most important thing we do in sustainability, but it's the hardest. Yeah. How about successes? Let's move on to a more positive topic. I think a lot of these projects that have been funded through our SSCF program, Laurel, you all have done one in Nashville, but there's some awesome examples of ways that local governments and community partners have been able to work together. I mean, just to, I'll bring up another Tennessee example, both the city of, actually, I think all of the cities at SDN that are part of our membership have received these awards. So um, the city of Knoxville and their community partners, city of Nashville and their community partners, Memphis and Chattanooga, you know, they've all been able to create opportunities um, for energy efficiency projects or, renewable energy projects to have these community-driven threads running through it or opportunities for workforce development that can access clean energy jobs, like taking a different approach to ways to meet the communities where they are. And I think that's a huge part of regenerative design because it's this whole community infrastructure where you, you have to have this level of access to all. And so I think that's a really cool thing that some of these projects, especially the ones in, over in Tennessee, have been able to do. You know, some examples in, in other states, we've had some projects in um, on the coast in Savannah, Georgia, and, and up in Durham, North Carolina, that have really focused more on green infrastructure and flooding and creating neighborhood scale interventions that create safer neighborhoods, cleaner neighborhoods, neighborhoods that aren't going to flood as much as they can, and and neighbors that have skills that can allow them to be more resilient in face of change. I think those have all been great success stories. And we even have a resilience hub that it hasn't totally launched yet, but our, our project in Fulton County that we funded and they're working in partnership with South Base, they are in the middle of this project creating a resilience hub at one of the libraries in Atlanta. And the concept of resilience hubs is really great example of a regenerative de design project. It's almost like an emergency center on steroids where people can come in in times of stress, but not only times of stress, they can come in and have access to the internet, or they can have access to job information, or they can have access to library books, or they can just have a place to come and feel like they have a more resilient and cohesive community support. And so that'll be a really cool project. It also has water catchment, it has solar power, it has battery storage. And so it's resilient in the sense that in times of shock, like real shock, people can go and feel safe there. Those are just a few examples that I would name. I was just going to ask one more question. What are you hoping to learn from your peers who will be joining you in November? A lot of these partners that are in our cohort in this program are very much more specifically focused on, um, say, the built environment, or maybe are working on very pointed elements of, say, community 
energy work. And so I, I'm really looking forward to learning more about some technical innovations that I am not hip to yet. Green Built Alliance or green spaces, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more about where they're seeing opportunity in the built environment or working with low-income neighbors on energy efficiency access or with renters on energy efficiency access or large-scale planning that they might be doing with their community partners on either climate or social situations that they're trying to, to work on together. So I know that they are the technical experts, and I think that's some of the, the pieces that I know I always learn the most from. I think I like to say that at SSDN, or, or especially in this position, I need to know a lot about a lot of different things, and it makes me have a very high-level and generalist perspective on a lot of the work that we do. And it's times like these when I can really geek out and learn on some really technical stuff that will make me uh, seem like I'm all the more wiser when I leave that convening in November. I think everyone's going to come to the table and wonder, what do we do in this federal moment? And what are everyone's plans in terms of responding to the IRA and responding to the bipartisan infrastructure law? I know that'll be a topic of conversation. I don't know that any one of us will have the right answer and pathway forward, but I really look forward to having that type of discussion with them as well. Thank you for joining us for the closing episode of the Green Minds podcast special edition on regenerative design. For more information on SSDN, check out southeastsdn.org.